0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 1.3 of the MVP pod. This is your host, Mathilson.
1: And I'm Harry. And our goal is to make building successful products easier by sharing stories and learnings of other products and builders. In this episode, we have a really special guest, Chow Lam, who's the founder of Next Small Things. Next Small Things is a company that develops and operates multiple consumer-oriented apps and websites. And one of their more prominent apps is the Threadreader Twitter app. Which some of you may have used or seen while scrolling through your twitter feeds it's one of the first twitter bots to address the readability of long ugly twitter threads where the app unrolls these twitter threads and displays them in an easy to read blog format
0: aside from that chow has a really interesting background and he has essentially seen it all when it comes to founding and running internet businesses chow founded venture capital back companies such as shopping list and ad knowledge during the dot com boom between 1996 and 2001. After this, he went on to explore different areas in tech, including working at eBay and leading product management at a nonprofit. Some topics we cover with Xiao in this episode include how to focus your efforts when bootstrapping, building on platforms such as Twitter, and evaluating when to acquire versus when to build. To wrap it up, we discuss how the current economic climate affects people that are currently building internet products and his advice for navigating this environment. With that, let's get straight into it. Ciao, we're so happy to have you here. But first, like let's let's talk about you, who you are. Uh, what do you want our listeners to know about you? Um uh, yeah, like what like who are you?
2: <laughs> um <laughs> Wow, well, that that's a big question. Uh I'm Chao Lam. Um uh I'm kind of Maybe uh pretty prototypical, I guess, older geek. I guess I grew up in Singapore and was kind of uh, enamored with computers. The first time I saw it, I think uh, there was like when I was ten years old in a bookstore. At that time, computers were still new enough that they actually had them in bookstores rather <laughs> than computer stores. And the first time I saw a keyboard and a terminal, that was uh, that was it. I was hooked already. And a few years later, the Apple II got introduced. I uh, really loved it in Singapore. I think it was introduced maybe two years after it actually was available in the US. And so, I had uh, one of my big lobbying campaigns to get my parents to get me one. (laughs) My parents still remember that. (laughs) one of my acts of defiance, I guess. And, uh, but I I tell them now, it's one of the best investments they ever made. So, uh, so um, I think, yeah, I really found my passion in high school. I was, I kind of liked science, but never really fell in love with any subject until computers came. And so when I was in Singapore, there was a junior college that was, uh, they were introducing computer sciences the first time they were going to teach it i just knew i had to do that and that kind of led me to the path where i was fortunate enough to get a government scholarship by the singapore government to study and then to actually study in the us and that's kind of how i ended up here and i did an undergraduate in university of illinois and then did a master's at uh yeah here in uh, stanford where, where I'm stay, still staying now. And then after that, because of my scholarship, I was actually required to go back to Singapore, first to serve national service, and then to serve out a what they call a bond in Singapore, where scholarship holders are required to work in the government. And I served out my national service, which was really like military requirements. But then one year into actually working in the government sector, I got... Really, kind of disillusioned by my impact and what and how government bureaucracy works, and and it was kind of strange because I guess the Singapore government is one of the most effective governments in the world, but still, it just wasn't my cup of tea. So um, I just pined for the days when I was thinking back at Stanford. I was actually working part time at a small little startup that bike industries that incidentally was also one of the first companies that sold the first Apple ones. So that's a a bit of history uh, that I was enamored with. And I felt kind of the the tug of Silicon Valley, came here for a visit and actually got a couple of job offers and decided to move over here. And I had to pay back the Singapore government, a huge chunk of... (laughs) My savings at a time and my parents helped to to be able to do that. But it it really was a big transition in my trajectory. And I worked at a place called Collider Labs, which was a spin-off between or joint collaboration between IBM and Apple. And at that time, I was a, uh, I am still a big Apple fanboy, and so <laughs> uh, that was kind of a dream job. I worked with really great colleagues there, and learned a ton. I think about especially engineering processes, how to uh, actually have a QA process, how to write tests, and <laughs> things like that. That was a huge learning, and then. Maybe fortunately or unfortunately, Apple ran into huge problems in 96 and funding stopped for Collider. And because of that, um, they, at that time anyway, they were still able to give very generous severances. And of course, 96 was probably one of the best times to do a startup on the internet (laughs) then, if you can still kind of recall that. And so we did that, and that was uh, we uh, it was just all the buzz because Netscape had just started. I don't think it had gone iPO yet, but it was just a huge buzz in the valley. Everyone was excited about the internet. And I guess uh, we, too, sort of thought, okay, we'll do an internet company. And so we created one of the world's first or most hated ad servers (laughs) that served banner ads. And it was unique also because we used a language called, uh, which was new then, called Java. And it was one of the first large-scale enterprise software written in Java. And because of that, or one of the reasons anyway, we were fortunate enough to be funded by the Kleiner-Perkins Java Fund. And, and so that um, that was also a huge learning experience because we just didn't know what, <laughs> what we were doing. I think, yeah. But it was huge because, yeah, we had real... Big highs about things, but also because we didn't really know the business aspects or even the venture aspects of things and kind of had a. Um, I think the one, the ad server business was changing very fast. Uh, Double click led the way. And the biggest change, I think, was that um, was eventually became what known as SaaS or the cloud based. Where ad servers were actually run by in the cloud by the company themselves, and we were still in the old mold of actually selling software that customers installed on their premises, and that that would turn out to be basically a dinosaur, and that was a huge lesson learned. And kind of because of issues like that, I left the company, uh, dropped out together a founder, but then and then started another internet company called Shopping List, but. Uh, over this internet company that later got renamed Ad Knowledge actually had a la- later on had a pretty good exit being at the peak of uh, in 1999, I think got sold for over 200 million. so we were kind of lucky there <laughs> even though I had already left the company. Um, but I started shopping list after that, another venture company and uh, tried to take the lessons where I'd learned from the first one. And it was much easier raising money this time around, partly because it was just internet mania. And we hired people like crazy. Uh, I think we hired really wonderful people, some of the best people that I've come to know. And just, yeah, le- learned a lot too. Um, but then the kind of internet crash happened. We had such big ambitions. And we was I remember we were still... Negotiating AOL deals even six months before the crash, where we were going to give AOL like over half a million dollars for a three-year deal, and then big, things, big kind of quote-unquote things like that. Then, and then, kind of everything fell apart. We had uh, huge troubles raising money, and then had to shut down the company. And that was that was a huge low for me at that time, especially having to shut down the company and then basically over sixty people lost their jobs and including me and so that was a real time to kind of soul searching time. Um, I took a bit of time off and then worked at eBay as a principal architect, but lasted less than a year there. Uh, I guess yeah, you know, big companies and big governments don't really I don't really work, work well there. What, what do
0: you think that is like that you lasted eBay for such a short time? Is it is it your your eagerness to jump back into like being a founder?
2: Yeah, it was a bit strange. It was kind of the proximate reasons was I think I was brought into eBay for more cultural reasons and political reasons than technical reasons. And there was basically at the time of eBay, it was growing tremendously, was doing really well, but there was a big rift between the founding technical team and the team that later got on. If, I don't know if you recall, but at that time, eBay had a lot of outages. <clears throat> and of course, the, the initial build that they had, which was enormously successful, was kind of straining, had probably a lot of technical debt and was hard to scale and things like that. And so they wanted to bring in more, I guess, quote-unquote professional management, professional engineers. And there was a huge culture clash there. And I was strangely brought in as maybe more on the professional side, but because of my background, it was I kind of actually was more empathetic towards maybe the founding engineering team. And so it was kind of a weird environment, but there were also... Weird things where people work late, not not to produce any actual work, but to show that they're working late and <laughs> things like that, that kind of was a bit frustrating.
1: It's interesting because I feel like that culture shift, right? When you're going, when you're scaling up, I guess E was already pretty big at that time, but moving from that founders, like, or like that startup phase to, you know, scaling up incentives are different where, you know, maybe like working longer hours is like seen as a productive thing uh-huh. and and so like uh, kind of like middle management or professionalism if you will um culture kind of like shifts um you know the company direction as well it's interesting that you said that though like i feel like even though you know you were brought in as that professional side you you still you know you said you empathize with more of the founding i guess like you still kind of despite working at this large company you wanted to preserve that culture of startups um, and that that sort of like frugalness if you will is that is that accurate
2: yeah maybe I wasn't probably wasn't looking at just the this bigger picture that you asked but it was more just kind of a visceral day-to-day reaction about more small small tasks and maybe the idea of getting things done faster and I remember one of the big things we had an architectural a literal commu- committee on was to decide company-wide which text editor we should use, <laughs> something like that. And uh, so that seemed kind of from my point of view, like everyone works differently, productivity-wise, it's a little silly to say everyone should be on a text editor, but there were good corporate reasons to say it's easier to monitor yeah. Things are easier when things are standardized. So there are kind of both sides of it, but my I think you can probably tell from my facial reactions that who my opinion is.
0: That makes sense. So after eBay, is this when you jumped? I think you you did something else before you jumped into next like small things, right?
2: Uh yeah. So I then was kind of um, I was also thinking, yeah, one kind of on the technical side, but thinking on the, that I was very enamored by maybe I had the coding experience, but I wanted more product and product impact experience that I thought I would get out of eBay, but it ended up <laughs> more internal than external. And so when I read about Mitch Kapos was starting a nonprofit foundation, to do basically productivity like office software and email software. And had the vision to bring open source was very successful in the kind of much more on the back end, like Linux and web servers. But why didn't we have more open source software on the front end? Uh, and that vision was resonated very strongly with me. And so I kind of signed up there and was fortunate to be uh, a product manager and to lead product management in the Open Source Applications Foundation.
0: So did you think that you got that product experience that you were looking for from that opportunity?
2: Uh, I think I did, but it also, I think, led me to the realization that... Um, at least as as the start and for when you're conceiving a new product, it's very hard to try to have two different roles like product management and engineering and separating it. I think maybe it's possible, but it's much, it's so much easier and much more possible if it's integrated together in one or two person's head. And it's, it's kind of an artificial split especially at the start and especially because I think we are working from zero knowledge from at least from the business side where we don't know who our customers are what the total addressable market all the things you learn in business school don't really apply at the at the zero stage I guess when a startup is non-existent and you're trying to go from zero to one and the field speak. <laughs> uh, and so then you need to do experiments and iterate and say, hey, does this resonate? And it's down to a much more personal one-to-one level. And that kind of speed of iteration is so much easier when you're building a product and try, uh, testing out business hypothesis at the same time. And I think that was the biggest thing I took out of open source app, the, this application foundation where I think because we were well resourced, we could have engineers and product management, but the kind of the synergy between the two became one of the things that made it slow going.
0: Yeah, as as individuals, I think, uh, I think me and Harry, we are like people that are looking into maybe switching over to product and going over to the product management side. How was like, as an engineer to start with, like how was it like to make that switch what do you think you brought from your engineering background to this new product management role? And is are there things that you missed when you, when you made the switch?
2: Yeah, I think my, my background of having done kind of two back startups really helped there because it, it kind of much more broadened my horizon to see, oh, uh, what is the business model? What, uh, uh, learning about the adopters and then the crossing the chasm and things that, kind of much more from the user point of view, customer point of view, the business model, what do users really want. I think that that was really valuable. And then I think combining with my engineering side was like, it's to see what is feasible. Is this, it, I mean, engineers are uh, like, and I'm definitely one of them are pretty bad at predicting, okay, this will take, uh, how long will this take? And we usually have to triple it but at least we can do something like that and estimate like, okay, this is difficult. So we're still okay in kind of predicting orders of magnitude maybe like, uh, okay, this, this thing is doable. No, this thing is 10 years away or something like that. And so what is feasible? What is doable? Especially if you're thinking in terms of uh, weeks instead of years, that that is kind of exciting. So combining with, I think that's the the good melting pot where you can say, okay, this is something users want and I can build something in a few weeks. Okay. And maybe in, in the end, it takes a few months. <laughs> but uh, if, if that actually uh, happens, then that that's that's great.
1: So that actually, I think touches on what you were saying earlier. Um, it sounded like you're saying product management and engineering, if you could centralize or like not have it as two distinctive functions, there is a lot of benefit to that. And right now you're just discussing sort of like a conflicting um or like maybe like product managers are thinking more like too far ahead and or thinking that something can be done, you know, a lot faster than it really can be. And engineers are more like grounded in reality of like of what is technically possible with the resources we have. Um so I guess like like to that point, do you think that, that makes like a stronger product manager someone who's able to empathize with the engineering teams is that is that like a conflict that you've seen um more easily resolved when you have someone with that empathy on both sides like who can you know understand what the technical resources limitations are and and what what the and like really prioritize which you know kind of projects to focus on
2: yes i yeah i think definitely it it definitely helps in terms of yeah, just even speaking day to day to say, hey, oh, uh, yeah, this this thing, I can see how difficult that is. Maybe there's a different way to do it there and then uh, explore in some some level of te- technical direction of, about it. That that definitely builds trust and also builds a collaboration ability. So yeah, I think that that definitely helps. And yeah, I think like even at OSAF, I, I tried to, do some technical parts like like try try out the APIs, try try to build out the first few extensions there, and then kind of give feedback based on that. And I think that that was helpful also. That's
0: amazing, yeah. So after your stint in product management, this is when you dive into Next Small Things, right? Yes, so, that's right. <laughs> and that's where you've been almost two decades building at Next Small Things as the founder of Next Small Things. Uh, so what has that been like? almost two decades spending time in this like building different different projects um yeah how, how does that feel what has that been like
2: wow yeah when you say two decades <laughs> it makes me feel old i didn't realize even the, uh really dawn on me it's been two decades um it's 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 been fun i think especially at the early stages i think it's it's kind of my dream job, quote, unquote, I think, because it's one where I feel I can control the, I think the the previous two decades maybe allowed me to understand what my strengths and weaknesses are. And I think the next small things, it's a crystallization of what allows me to do well and enjoy what I'm doing and still make a living, I think. And I think that things that I learned were like, um, one, I had very little knowledge about how sales goes and how the whole sales process, even how the true salespeople. So one of the, I guess, big tenets, uh, Next Small Things is a very loose uh, kind of idea. We can do many different projects, but one of the biggest no was we don't, a project shouldn't involve a salesperson. Basically, that's one of the rules there. So that there's no sales cycle. There's no kind of, and almost by that definition, then it, it's rarely an enterprise software. It There's no long sales cycle. It's much more direct to consumers because of that. And maybe another big one was also that I didn't quite enjoy managing people and i'm less of a people person and more an introvert so i prefer small working with small groups of people and i think hence the name next small things i think so uh those two are maybe the central organizing ways in which we thought about what projects to do with next small things
0: yeah i mean just because our listeners some context so next small things is your company where you're building i guess like tools to make the user experience better for users on the internet um and and mostly tools I and mean, next small things is bootstrap right so for those that don't know what bootstrapping is it's pretty much when you are like people often say like when one bootstraps themselves uh where it's essentially the process of launching or growing a business without any external help or capital so from all, all experience you've had from from working in a VC backed um, you know companies and then working in product management, how did that lead to working on a company that's solely bootstrapped and working on things that are solely bootstrapped?
2: Um yeah, I think it it really was kind of these two, well, uh, especially the second realization that I didn't want um from my Uh, To venture back experience, I I learned that the biggest conflict I had with VCs was that they wanted uh, kind of something that would basically the dream thing would be to be a unicorn, a big, a big company with a great exit, and it didn't matter that there was a small chance of having a big exit. Because to them, it's a portfolio. So one out of a hundred, if it's uh, a big exit, that still works really well for them. But obviously, if I only had one company, then uh, having one out of a hundred or more likely one out of 10,000 chance of having something like that would be very slim odds for me. And so maybe when I was young, I believed I was very excited about building something big. But then having experiences where, uh, or encountering reality and finding that that was really, really tough, it made me realize that, yeah, maybe doing something small and something that had showed incremental progress and like what you said, the bootstrapping way was a more, I think, a more meaningful way and also actually a more assured way, maybe a, even a possibly a better path towards uh, doing a big thing uh and so i think that was the one big realization and then i think second was also that yeah I, it it was also a confluence with what had happened in the last 10 years versus the venture back days i was seeing the rise of ruby on rails and linux servers and how basically uh Software productivity had changed by at least 10x in the last 10 years. And it was actually possible for a small team to do what really required venture investment and millions of dollars to do. We didn't have to buy Oracle licenses. We could use MySQL. We could use Ruby on Rails instead of a huge server, a stack that from one of like IBM or uh, WebSphere or some of the companies there. So there was just Huge changes have put that we could capitalize on, and we were really excited about that.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty interesting perspective. Where, like, when I was originally thinking about how VC backed versus like bootstrapping might change a business's direction, like, if if someone were VC backed, they have a lot more potentially time and resources to diversify their projects, or maybe slightly lose focus on what their original plan is, or or maybe just look at different projects at once. Whereas if you're bootstrapping you're generally like limited in resources and you may be focused, you know, exactly on your on your goal and something that you're personally more interested in. But to your point, it seems like also on top of that, it's just easier now. You don't need all these other resources or VCs to to start up. And that decentralization, I guess, or the ability for anyone to kind of start is much more prevalent now versus yeah,
2: It's amazing. And I think the rate of change there is also pretty incredible where now like I belong to a, uh, small bits community. I'm not sure if you know about that. Um, Daniel Vasalo's community. and they're talking about multiple projects in uh, one person handling multiple projects and multiple small bits at the same time. So it's being like a small VC yourself or something. Like I was that. about to say
1: that. yeah, because like it is like being a small VC because you're saying earlier how you know other VCS, you know, they see you they see you as a founder as one of many. And so like, it's easier for them to look at their portfolio as a whole and say, okay, it'll grow at X percent. But when you're all in on one project, it's like, you know, <laughs> you can, you know, it's sick or swim kind of thing. Um, whereas now if you have, if since the ability to start multiple projects is, you know, like the the barriers are lower. There's no reason to not, I guess, start multiple things.
2: I'm still wrestling with that that part about being able to do multiple things at the same time. But it's definitely an intriguing concept
1: so uh, on that note, then, do you think so at next small things, like right now, your process for getting that next small thing, are you are you usually kind of just like surveying the market and what new opportunities are coming or something that interests you and then kind of shifting focus to that? completely or are you looking at potentially trying to start multiple things at the same time like what's that approach for you at next small things
2: it's yeah it's not very systematic it's much more kind of on a whim right now but it's um i yeah thought a bit about how we can think about it more rigorously but haven't <laughs> come out with a really good method is so it's kind of the same things like everyone's excited about AI right now uh the the chat and images uh, that's it's like a wide open field and just talking about the possibilities there it's I think we've had more successes when it comes from like what users need and especially when we have almost a direct contact to someone who can explain in detail about what someone needs there um, or observing it online, I think. Um, and that that usually helps. And then the the thing that I think the biggest learning we've done maybe in the last two decades is that it's the product idea There there are tons of product ideas, and many of them are possible. But usually the catalyst that makes things work is that you need to figure out a distribution strategy and especially for consumer-facing products, so how do you do this without, basically, without spending advertising dollars? And if there is a mechanism to getting basically word of mouth of your product that to the right people that. That usually is what gives us the aha moment and say, okay, let's let's try to build this because once we're confident about the distribution channels, then or we can at least test the distribution channels. Then then it's actually something that may work.
0: That's something that you brought up in one of your articles, I believe, where you talk about how you built it into one of your apps that you built on the Next Small Things called the Thread Reader app. So for those that don't know what reader uh, thread reader is essentially as a tw- Twitter tool uh, where you can below like in a thread you can comment saying uh, you tell thread reader app unroll and it would grab that thread and, and then save it for later where you can read it at a convenient time so huh. like you mentioned in your article where this process of like where our users are invoking thread reader by commenting on a thread allows other users to see that and realize that oh this is this is a cool tool that i could also use and that was kind of your distribution one of your distribution channels which was essentially just twitter itself or um right. the app itself. Huh. so that was that was really cool to see because i didn't it's it didn't it, i never thought about it like that like it huh. it feels unintentional i would uh i would just thought that it was more of a um just that way of doing it is just the easiest way to unroll a thread. I didn't think of it as a distribution channel, a channel itself. So that was really interesting to read when I, when I was reading the article.
2: Yeah. I think that that was one of the beauty of it, that it's so natural for the user that the user it's so convenient for the user. And yet it's also a kind of an advertising channel to other users there. And actually for thread reader app, it was also our first experiment because we didn't create thread reader app. And so we actually bought the service almost five years ago now, and it was still a pretty small service, but I, that was the thing that really attracted me when I saw it and I saw, oh, wow, this is such a genius way of uh, distributing and telling about your service. And I just knew that, that that was a huge part of the success, and so when we found out that it was available for sale, we actually took on the project there and said, "Well, oh, yeah, we would definitely want to uh, kind of grow this up to the service," and that was that was the primary reason why we did it.
1: And um, I guess on distribution with Redditor, you do also have like the user base of Twitter, and you're building on an existing platform, I guess we can dive into that kind of part of it and your experience with, you know, w- what, um, what did you see as like one of the benefits of an app like Dreadreader on when you were looking to acquire it, um, having it built on an app like Twitter and the fact that it was, you know, easily, I guess it can go viral easily where like, you know, if every tweet that happens, it's essentially more and more visibility for the product so I guess I'm curious, like how, um, what kind of things were you looking at when you were acquiring Threadreader as well as the building on a platform part of it? Like what, what about that drew, drew your interest?
2: Yeah, I think the the main part was this this whole mechanism of actually telling people when someone says that Thread Reader app unroll, they are signifying interest to say, hey, I want to read this later, or I may want to share it with my friend but it's also a feedback back to the author to say, hey, this is a really interesting set of tweets that I want to save for later. And it's almost kudos to the to the author. So that's a, that's a boost too. And it's kudos to the community yeah, of uh, the person's followers and also the thread author's community to say, hey, the, well, the job well done. So I think that that really builds on the community aspect. And we really like that. And we saw that part as something that could really have legs there. So we're really excited about that. Um, The technical part of the platform was written in PHP, which I had no background at all with. But this is where maybe I had some of the technical confidence to say, Hey, it's okay. (laughs) I I know uh, languages like Ruby or JavaScript and PHP is just yet another scripting language. So that's something that I could just pick up and have the confidence there to to do that. And then I think the third leg is, was probably just the business side and just coming up with the right business arrangements, being kind of reasonably confident that the projections would hold through. And I think we exceeded our expectations. So that was a good part.
0: So Reader, as we know, it's built on top of Twitter as a platform. So you have some experience building on platforms. What are some things you've learned from not building on twitter but just building on platforms so what should other people looking at uh looking to bootstrap or build build a product that's on a platform say twitter or shopify even apple google like these platforms what are what are things that people should watch out for what are some advice you you would give people building on platforms
2: yeah it's it's definitely kind of a two two edged thing right uh, where the twitter of course is offers that distribution is the reason why Twitter Read App exists. And it offers a huge leverage. So it's, it's definitely a fantastic thing to have. But the problem is, of course, we are entirely beholden to, to Twitter because they control the API and they can set the guidelines and they can shut us off at any time. So I think that is being realistic about those advantages and disadvantages is probably the clearest thing, like especially like uh, right now where things are very much in flux. We are not able to have a crystal ball and be able to predict, hey, what's gonna happen in the next year? But the nice thing about being a small team is that we can react quite quickly to changes and to be able to figure out what to do next. So I think living on a platform, the biggest advice may be that you have to be agile and you have to be adaptable and you also may have to give up your baby. I think that is a mindset of that too.
1: Yeah, on that note, I guess you know perhaps it's it's pretty convenient or nice. Um, yeah, as you said, one of the big benefits of building on a platform existing user base, and you have like the the ability to tap into that and penetrate that market. But I guess like since you are beholden to that platform, kind of diversifying your risk as soon as possible. It sounds like that's kind of like one of the you know advice or perhaps trying to you know bring in user base and a user base of your own um independent of you know uh like a twitter or apple or something like that um so i guess like just a you know quick comment on that is that you know being able to transition users from like a platform to your company is that something that you've thought of with like things like thread reader or like thought of 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 like when you're thinking about expansion away from a platform and perhaps something just more independent to
2: yeah um we've thought about it a bit and i think it's it's quite tough that's the problem the natural thing and a lot of our users have asked us is oh let's build one for mastodon but the the unique nature of the reader app is something tied very uniquely to Twitter that it currently, or it used to have 280 character limitation. And then you try to bunch them all up and and then roll it up to a one page article. And Mastodon doesn't have that limitation. You can write a lot. And it doesn't even have the culture of writing short. ones. Lots of people write long passages there. So there's there's like not so much of a need for that. Um, The other thing about Twitter is that it's such a vast fire hose, and so the biggest, most unintuitive learning about Thread Reader app was that people were willing to pay for basically PDFs for archival copies of things that we unroll, and that I don't think as yet it's something that is easy to. Transferred. It. We've tried to say, oh, do you want PDFs of other things <laughs> like uh, Instagram things or uh, things on Facebook? But really, because Twitter is kind of a news source and a news channel, and then you can never go back and search for something on Twitter. Uh, that becomes a bit unique to what Twitter wants. So every time we try to dive deeper down to why people use our product, it becomes much more Twitter specific. So I think that's probably a, a good way to transition users out, but we haven't found one, unfortunately.
0: So speaking on, you know, uh, bootstrapping, building on platforms, I know you kind of mentioned this, but like often people think about, you know, what happens if the platform itself bakes what I'm building just as a feature into their platform? Is that something that people should be worried about? And at what stage should, should they be thinking about that? Or like, is that legitimate? Like, Thing that they should be worried about at all. Um, I know you mentioned that that people should be ready to give up their baby. So, uh, is that how you should think about things?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a, a bit of a I guess maybe a Faustian bargain kind of thing, where um, it it probably and we've actually gone through it. This is probably the third cycle in which we've depended on platforms. So. I think to be a small company, it's it's certainly not the only way, but it's a lot easier to build on top of other platforms. But because of that, I think, and that is my biggest lament is that the, the product lifespan isn't that long because companies change and it's uh, the past two times, at least the, the two big project that we had that depended on platforms were because uh, in this uh, in the previous case was Facebook had this huge Cambridge analytical scandal, and they that totally changed the APIs. And then the previous one, MySpace, just kind of imploded. <laughs> and so if you depend on a company, yeah, that is definitely one of the biggest risk factors. And um, yeah, how do you mitigate that is a big issue. I think it's like what Harry said, um, if you can figure out a way to transition users out, that would be great. Uh, and we've, we've kind of done that to limited extent in both getting MySpace users out to Facebook the first time and then Facebook to iOS users uh, a little bit, um, but with some limited success. So that's something we're still struggling with.
1: Yeah, it's almost like when you're building on your platforms you could be a victim of your own success because the more and more successful it is the more and more incentivized the the platform company is to build it themselves organically i think right. um huh. i think i think amazon is kind of like accused of that a little bit with some of the products that they sell in their marketplace mm. and then they build it themselves kind of like an anti-competitive like angle to that as well but you know the more and more successful you are the more and more likely that platform would want to build it in themselves or perhaps even acquire that integrator yeah. or that um, that third party so i guess like that's you know it's, it's something that you probably should have in the back of your head as you're building on platforms and thinking about the next next um you know feature or something that you're looking to build if you if you want to stay on that platform
2: i think that that's why i think uh your uh podcast about twitter relating to instagram was uh was very illuminating and that they kind of pulled out that hat trick of being able to leverage the audience of Twitter and then becoming like a hundred times bigger than Twitter now, something like that. And so that that was pretty phenomenal, but it's also pretty rare, I think. And maybe Substack is is getting into that and succeeding there. So there are definitely, I think, success stories about that, but it also requires a lot of good strategic thinking and
1: then also luck uh, yeah being able to have like that differentiating factor um like what's that fabric of your company that can you know exist independently of the platform that you built on um you know if there's something that users resonate with about that why i guess of you know that value that you're bringing on for example twitter and how that can also be replicated on another platform like that i guess that strategic thinking that it's pretty hard to, you know, get that sense of, it's also how other companies may think about expansion generally, right? Like what is their core mission? Like how, how are they really bringing value to, you know, particular customer base and then expanding that to other markets?
2: Yeah. I, and it may also be one of our blind, blind side about our philosophy of next small things where we want to remain small or just one of the limitations where to, To be able to grow out of a platform may require, let's say, capital injection or maybe growing more employees and more marketing spend. I think it's a counterfactual, but like if Instagram wasn't bought by Facebook, would it have become as big as it did without the resources and the geniuses of Facebook itself? Uh, How would that have happened? And I think that was the thing where we rightly or wrongly have maybe a smaller ambition because of that, or we think smaller and it comes in our name. And that may be a, a bad thing in this case, where if you want to grow out of a platform, you have to have these big dreams about it. And then uh, maybe it requires then saying, oh, pitching to a VC or coming, how how do you, to do it in a bootstrappy way Is makes it doubly difficult. I think. And so that's a tough part. Uh, yeah one day we haven't figured out quite
1: yet (laughs) yeah but i mean this clearly like benefits to the way that you know your approach right now with next small things being able to be agile and like adapt very quickly to you know there's like a quote where like the one thing that never changes is the fact that there will be change like that is (laughs) (laughs) like so being able to build that resiliency is something of value that will carry on for i guess like you know, multiple products and multiple projects, whereas just taking with one thing and just expanding on that may you know, lead to your eventual downfall. So I guess it's like a bit of a trade-off there. Um, but still very insightful to hear, you know, your perspective on that.
0: For sure. And you mentioned that you acquired thread reader. So I'm generally curious as someone that um so like I, I work on a lot of side projects on, like, on the side and I've actively been, I guess, window shopping these micro startups or these micro sasses using uh, this is platform called micro acquire. We can go and like look through, it's essentially a, a marketplace for these smaller internet businesses. Um, so what did you, uh, um, I guess like, uh, I, know, I know you spotted the potential in Threadreader, but were there other things that you looked into before feeling like feeling confident in acquiring third reader?
2: Yeah, I think it was the, the financials and it kind of maybe can be distilled down to this surprise that people were actually paying primarily for PDFs in the, in the thread reader app. And that kind of gave it a real fiscal business model and that, that I think, Totally didn't see until I dived into the product itself uh, and it was a nice surprise. I thought at first it was just mainly advertising driven. I think it's maybe quite a few other people thought.
1: Yeah. And no, I was going to say that's important to know what other business models there are for a company when you're evaluating. I guess you felt like more strongly for um a business model where users are actually paying versus, you know, just relying on advertising revenue. I think that's something we were kind of discussing on Twitter, on our Twitter episode, how I think the new direction of Twitter is to, you know, with Twitter blue, trying to encourage more user spend where users are getting value and they're, they're the ones actually paying for it versus advertising, which can be a little bit more, I guess, susceptible to, outside kind of factors or external factors um so is that something that you were thinking like just like the business models or well, when you said financials like how how i guess that's more predictable um you know cash flow that you could see for the next few years and that's something i guess more attractive for you
2: yeah i think the other big piece was also the learning previously we had basically relied Almost primarily on all advertising revenue, so this was our first product that had a huge subscription component, and it was a big learning experience from the technical part about actually creating the payment flow, and then to the actual parts about how, uh, what metrics to observe for, <clears throat> and to optimize for on the subscription side. Those those were big learnings, and I'm. I'm really glad we did it too, because I think the last, I think at least 15 years has shown that advertising is becoming much, much more difficult a business. I think uh, it's not just the, I think Apple changes were about privacy and less targeting, but just in general, everyone's jumping on the advertising bandwagon. There's just so much more content out there. And so ad revenue per, per impression has just and made it much harder to make money on that. So I think, and on the other hand, consumers are now much more willing to pay than they were 10 years ago. And so I think that that's been a very good learning at the right time for us.
1: And I guess on that point on, you know, advertising revenue versus user kind of revenue, how do you feel about the incentives for a company uh, when you're building... And advertisers are your primary source of revenue. You're all, that's basically your customer, right? Like your, even though you have a separate user base, your customers are actually like your the advertisers on your platform. Whereas when you're getting, you know, payments from a user, your that, that is your customer now. I guess how do you how do you see that difference? Is there is there any sort of like misalignments in incentives where you may be focusing your product direction to optimized for the advertising experience instead of the user experience? Or do you even see that as distinct? Um, perhaps it's actually more aligned than I'm framing definitely. it.
2: Definitely. In fact, I much prefer the <laughs> direct consumer payment model because I, I hate to see crappy ads too, I think. So when you design a product, uh, advertising, it's never, it's very, very seldom the central thing of the, the thing. It's usually... The thing that you're forced there just for revenue and especially the more dubious advertising channels like pop-ups or two bars and things like that where they are lucrative but i think destroy the user experience so for sure i way prefer the direct consumer model the direct consumer model also though has a bit especially uh, at least in the freemium side there is still a bit of a conflict because Of course, most of our users, or probably 99% of people who visit our site aren't paying users. So in that sense, how much do we serve them versus the actual 1% that actually pays? It's still a a conflict that we we see, but it's a much smaller one compared to advertising.
0: One thing that I was really thinking about, when do you decide to make that micro acquisition versus build at next small things. Is that something you guys are actively doing where you're actively looking at acquisitions, small acquisitions you can make to pursue a new business or yeah. Like how do you make that decision uh, of building something from scratch versus acquiring something and then working from there?
2: Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely something I've been thinking about a bit. I think the first most direct answer was probably about this distribution angle. Uh, that was what attracted us with Thread Reader app. I think there is an underrated mode or defensibility once you have succeeded in creating a viral channel, and even though you there are like lots of copycats for Thread Reader app, once Thread Reader app established this pattern, it's is viewed, even though everyone else does it almost exactly the same way, is viewed as the first one and the people in the know continue to use it and so spread it out. And it's very hard to catch up based on that. So I think that that was a primary reason. And then the second one is more kind of, it just shows my age and maybe my laziness. It's, <laughs> it's easier uh, to build something from scratch uh, takes time and effort. And sometimes it's easier just to uh, rely on someone else to do it. And if now, if now I have the resources to do that, that's definitely something that I would, I have the luxury. And so yeah, have that opportunity to do that.
1: Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned like some of the benefits there. Um, number one, buying something that was first to market. There's a lot of benefits because users, you have an existing user base that may have some sort of like maybe loyalty, or you've already built this kind of network effect and strong user base that's going to stick with your product. I guess the second thing you mentioned was the time you're saving, like you're basically paying for time that you would have had to spend. And that's probably more valuable than the money. So it's a good trade-off.
2: I think the, the two in this case really worked well because the time savings, Lit fit to the network effects kind of geometrically. And I think that was the critical part where other copy by, I think if someone had a copycat that came in almost exactly at the time we bought it, there would have been much stiffer competition. But by the time they came out, maybe a year later, that was much harder.
1: Yeah. I was going to mention one thing, but while you're on this topic, you're saying like that time is. I feel like that's something that you're able to capitalize on more with next small things because the agility if if you find something of interest like right now all the buzz is on AI similar to maybe the internet back in you know the late 90s okay. um so now everyone wants to have a startup in AI but if you if you felt like you know that's something that you're interested in you can easily kind of pivot or you have like the you don't have the baggage to carry when you're trying to move on to something new um quickly though I wanted to touch on Micro acquisitions, because you said when you purchased Thread Reader was written in PHP and something that you didn't even, you know, you didn't have experience in. That's something that might deter other potential buyers. Usually, where like, oh, I'm not familiar with this product base uh, or, or like how, how it was developed. Um, I'm not familiar with this market, and yet you still made that jump because you saw more value in it than, um, and and you felt like you were confident enough to still build on top of what was already there. Um, I guess, is that something that you like, and that trade-off, is that something that you were considering at the time? Like, despite not knowing the language, like you're still going to make that investment because you just see so much more potential. And like, I guess that, that mindset, or what kind of like variables were you, were at play at the time?
2: Yeah, it was definitely a consideration, but it was, I think maybe two two things. One maybe was the confidence I had that it wasn't that big a deal. Um, Languages were just languages. And then two was also maybe a curiosity or at least a positive attitude to say, hey, this is a learning experience. I've heard a lot about PHP. Facebook was built on PHP. There must be something to it. And hey, that's just an opportunity for me to learn and find out something new and have fun with it. And so I think having that kind of attitude definitely helps to say the can-do attitude and maybe the arrogant can-do attitude, but arrogant in a good way. And then also the wanting to learn and say, hey, this will be fun.
1: I feel like perhaps it's easy to get over analytical on these kind of decisions. But when you have that gut instinct to say, okay, this is something that's doable or that confidence, I guess that's where... You know, it's it's beyond, I guess, just over analyzing. You don't need to consider all these variables. Have like all these cost benefit analysis, and then you know, go for it. I guess there's a little bit of intuition or instinct that comes into play.
2: Right. Yeah. I I really think I don't think yeah. Language, especially in this in the world in the web world where things are structured, it's where there might like microservices and things like that where you can distill things down to just a single URL or a single HTTP call. So it's the technology, at least I don't think it's that difficult uh, yet. Maybe uh, when it comes to machine learning and AI and there's a deep stack or it's a very obscure stack to me now, I would be much more worried about it. But yes, yeah, the web is, I think something pretty well understood. There's so much, Googling, uh, so much information that you can just Google that yeah, I wasn't
1: that worried about it. Uh, yeah, Stack Overflow is your friend, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I suppose it's not as big of a barrier as one might think when you look at acquire. Like as long as there's definitely other elements to a business, like you gotta take bigger picture than just, you know, what language it was. Um it shouldn't it shouldn't deter you or shouldn't you shouldn't be scared of that, I guess. Yeah.
2: Um, it's like that when we had to build new features, we I like pri- the biggest part we rewrote was or added new stuff was in Node.js. So I didn't continue to use PHP in those cases, but just wrote some <laughs> new task in Node.js and JavaScript. And yeah, that that worked pretty well, <laughs> given the the nice thing about architectures now is you can mix and match.
0: <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like nowadays it's become so much easier to build where a lot of these things aren't such so much of an issue, um, especially for engineers. I feel like we're getting more productive uh, every year, given the advancement in technology, like now with AI and, um, you know, GitHub Copilot, it helping you, mm-hmm. you know, write code and yeah, chat GPT. Just cha- ask chat yeah, GPT to yeah.
2: Fill, <laughs> fill in the code.
0: <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, a lot of people think that, in my opinion, a lot of people think that, uh, you know, that it's going to steal jobs but at least of the developers but i feel like it's just going to make people more efficient so you can work on the more important yeah yeah exactly um so i guess wrapping things up you know currently we're in a bit of a challenging environment economically i'd say what what uh, uh, how does this affect a bootstrapper or someone that's trying to build off of self-capital or capital of their own rather than um you know uh, outside help um is there, is there things you've noticed uh, amongst your peers or even yourself in terms of challenges given the current climate?
2: I think that first off, like talking a little bit about micro acquisitions, I'm kind of glad, I think in the last previous three years, the multiples have just gone up tremendously. And so it's starting to come down quite a bit. So that's, that's a good thing from my point of view, looking from the point of view of the buyer. And I guess similarly it's a good time to look for other people you may want to work with because there may be a lot of a lot more good people around to work with now that the big companies are doing their layoffs and it's it's probably yeah it, it's it's uh because on the one hand technology is just advancing so fast there's so many more opportunities and then on the the other side, there are a lot of things that you can now become more productive. You can work with other people. So I I think, yeah, the, the chance to do something like what we do is very promising and very bright.
0: For sure. I think it's very commonly said that the best time to build is during challenging times um hmm. and that's also something i noticed when you mentioned about the multiples like just window shopping on microquire seeing uh, you know revenue multiples of 10x like a year ago here to go to drop like almost 50% or even less so, so i guess it's a great time to invest and build for sure
1: yeah and i have to say i love the optimism cuz like you know generally speaking like this is sort of a downtime in the industry and startups but like i love that you know you focused on number 1 the number of new, new people that you could potentially meet who are looking to start things and two like the 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 opportunities to acquire um you know there there are plenty of opportunities like it although it may seem like it's kind of like a downtime perhaps it is for the like sellers if you will but there is still opportunity for for buyers for people to start something new look for new opportunities and you know meet new people so yeah I, I really like, like
2: you could, Harry the yeah I think AI Oh, all this deep learning, machine learning opens up. I think it feels very much like 96, 97 in the the first internet boom where the possibilities are just what you can imagine. I think that that is really what makes me light up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I don't know, that moment of chat GPT, um, that was quite a moment in the industry because I I personally hadn't experienced anything like that where like so much excitement, around something and all these different possibilities are opening up all these new startups um although now i guess it's it is a little bit um you know the times are a little a little tougher to 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 find funding and to build or at least get help but there may be more opportunities on the bootstrapping side if if you have something that can Mm -hmm.
2: yeah i think yeah it's maybe unless you've got something and it's much better to bootstrap because it's still very cheap to build. I think that's the advantage. Of.
1: Yeah, it's not like you need, um, yeah, like you, you don't have to set up your own services, all these cloud platforms. There's, there's so many ways to, so many other tools to leverage um, right. where the barriers to entry, the cost-wise
0: is, is very low still. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what advice would you give entrepreneurs entering the bootstrapping space? You mentioned frugality or like what are kind of the common pitfalls that you've noticed entrepreneurs entering the space and how do you think they should avoid them?
2: Maybe just repeating on my mantra, think about distribution first. Think about how, especially I'm talking much more about a consumer facing product, but yeah, if that's the case, yeah, think about what users want, but also how users will hear about your product is probably the number one thing. And then I think the others are probably things that you've heard a lot more from other people like just <clears throat> just try it out just deploy it i think having a reasonable don't don't be over analytical uh, like harry says but have some questions about like what am i trying to validate what are my assumptions and what how can i most cheaply and quickly either invalidate or prove out that uh, that those are the, I think, things, the high leverage points in which you can try to build a successful business out of.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Chao. So what is your next small thing, Chao? Uh,
2: I'm still thinking about that. I think that's, uh, I, before all this AI revolution, I think I wrote in one of the essays, I was thinking about this distribution mechanism about at thread reader unroll but using it on Instagram and trying that out. So that, uh, that's still something I'm thinking about. But then, yeah, like <laughs> we've been talking about ChatGPT and the whole stable diffusion and images coming out and ChatGPT4 now with multimodal. It just opens up so many possibilities that I think, yeah, it's it's more the nerd in me rather than a business, but I want to, just try different things out and experiment there. I think that's probably the next direction. Too. Yeah,
0: we had a an amazing time talking to you. And me and Harry definitely learned a lot. This was a great conversation. Where can people reach you if they wanted to reach out to you? We know the next small things, uh, Substack newsletter, which we both love reading. There's a lot of articles there that we related to as people really interested in product and just um, entrepreneurship. Where you put out articles about things that you've learned through your past in this space, so I think that's definitely something people need to check out. So the next small thing, Substack newsletter, we'll put in the podcast notes. Um, but where else could people reach you?
2: Yeah, I'm kind of an introvert. I <laughs> don't many. I'm on Twitter, uh, just Chaudose, uh c h a o d o z e, and I guess yeah, try our products, Thread Reader app, <laughs> and i think the Substack is where i'm yeah trying like you say to put put out what i've learned and try to just share it out there and uh have fun doing that
1: <laughs> great yeah and i guess with that we're wrapping up mvp pod episode 1.3 again thank you chad for your time so uh, yeah we'll catch you in the next thank one you
2: so much yeah Re- really enjoyed our conversation
0: <clears throat> cool.